0: A team, so I found this quite a frustrating experience. One day, I was sitting in the change rooms, and I and I said a quiet prayer. Lord, help us to play well today. To which my inner critic replied, "Me, well, we won our game, and I played the game of my life." And as I walked off the field, basking in the glory of the moment, I remembered that I had prayed. A significant moment for me, my first answered prayer. Wow. Now, my struggles with faith, this new faith of mine, were not over by any stretch. But my sceptical inner critic took a beating that day. And I still remember and talk about that feeling almost 40 years later. Well, the prayer of desperation features in today's story too. And it goes like this. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread, in other words, the Passover. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. Now I saw uh, Jesus Christ Superstar a few years ago and in that play there's a uh, the character Herod and Mark Hadlow, the, the Kiwi comic, played him and he played him a little bit like a cross between um, Hugh Hefner of Playboy magazine fame and a sort of a, a despot of some description from a small African country. Here's Alice Cooper, our brother in the Lord, uh, playing him in another production. You get the idea. And I can well imagine such a king killing a Christian leader, James, sees his poll numbers go up, so thinks, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll kill another one. Now, I'm not sure how to interpret the phrase, it pleased the Jews. Does this mean that the church? had lost the favour that it held with the people shortly after Pentecost? Or or was it just the rulers and priests who'd always been pretty grumpy? Don't know for sure, but hearing that they baptised Gentiles might not have gone down well with anyone. So probably the early church's popularity was on the slide with most people. Now never let it be said that Herod was dumb. He'd heard the alternative great commission story that Jesus' followers had robbed his grave. So he sent no less than four squads of soldiers to guard one person, Peter. There was going to be no jailbreak, no empty cell to follow the empty tomb. To interfere with the show trial that, Herod had planned for Peter straight after Passover. Now the church was not planning a rescue. They were taking their anxiety about Peter, their leader, to God in fervent prayer. The story continues. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping a watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him up. I don't think I'll be sleeping. Saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrist. The angel said to him, fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they'd passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and they walked along a lane when suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognising Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. And just uh, that it was so, they said, oh, it's just his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking and when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he added, tell this James and to the believers. And then he left and went to another place. I think it's ironic that Peter had a harder time getting admitted into the prayer meeting than he had getting out of prison. To explain a bit about the guardian angel thing, they thought that in those days that everyone had one, And your guardian angel looked exactly like you. But still, think about it. You're praying like mad, and you're told that the answer to your prayer is on the doorstep, and you don't even go look. Curious. Now, it's important to remember that the standard of faith in the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. See that little bit there on the end of that guy's finger? Just a wee bit. Just a wafer-thin mint, and God can do the rest. I kind of cringe on the inside when I hear someone say that they are believing God for something, as if the strength of their faith will somehow force God's hand. Doesn't work that way. Now, it's not recorded here, but I'll bet that when James was John's brother James was arrested. They prayed fervently for him too. But he was executed. If you pray or come to pray, needing a particular answer to be what you want, then you're going to have a bumpy old ride of a prayer life, of a life of faith. And If you think about the original early church, James was John's brother, who along with Peter had been one of Jesus' inner circles. He was present at the Transfiguration on top of the mountain. He was present at the healing of Jairus' daughter and the agony of Gethsemane just before Jesus' arrest. When Jesus was alone with three people, he was one of them. Jesus had invested heavily in this guy. And it wasn't like his death had some noble purpose like Stephen's that had led to the sharing of the gospel in the countryside around. God's sovereign response to prayer is not predictable. We cannot twist his arm. Our motivation to pray, I think, at its heart, needs to be a sign that we trust God with the situation or the person that we are bringing before him. No matter what the outcome Like Jesus in Gethsemane, who prayed as a man fearing for his life. He said at the end, but not my will be done, but yours. Well, God's will was done, and it cost Jesus everything. And wisely, Peter went into hiding after ensuring that James, the brother of Jesus, that's the other James, knew that he was okay. Well, when morning came, there was no small commotion amongst the soldiers over what had become of Peter. You can imagine it, can't you? When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Nice guy. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Good help is so hard to find, isn't it? So Herod retreats to the Roman town of Caesarea. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He'd moved on. So they came to him in a body, and after winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for a reconciliation because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat on the platform, and delivered a public address to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a mortal, presumably trying to curry favour. And immediately, because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Let that be a lesson to you. Now I am sure that Herod looked amazing, a bit like King Chuck III, our new king. In his best royal togs, but he was rotten on the inside. God, our God, is not fond of competition for the praise of his people. And Herod found out that truth to his cost. Well, we've reached the, the point in the Acts narrative when it completely pivots away from Peter and Jerusalem to Paul and antioch and then later rome it's been coming for a while listen to these next few verses but the word of god continued to advance and gain adherence then after completing their mission barnabas and saul returned to jerusalem and brought with them john whose other name was mark now in the church at antioch there were prophets and teachers barnabas simeon who was called niger Lucius of Cyrene and a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were there worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Q, chapters 13 to 29. Peter shows up again briefly in Galatians, being criticised by Paul because he was afraid to eat with Gentile Christians. Maybe he had a fear of people, need to please or to be liked, got him in trouble on the night before Jesus died, and was still a part of him. Even among the stunningly courageous acts of this man that we have recited from chapters 1 to 12, he was still a very imperfectly remade very human person. Newsflash, so are you, and so am I. As the wise modern prophet Demi Moore said, we judge our insides against other people's outsides, and the comparison is not great. But we are all under construction no matter how good we might look on the outside. Now Peter also shows up again at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 when he and James, the brother of Jesus, who led the Jerusalem church, steered the church to welcoming Gentiles. However, he is no longer the central figure of the narrative. The spotlight was no longer on him. His days in the sun were finished. Is that a problem? No. Because the motor force of the gospel was and is not particular people, it was the Spirit. And the Spirit was still on the move. However, sometime later in his life, before he was martyred, say twenty years later, he wrote two letters, which are worth a read. I want to show you a few snippets from them. This is First Peter one three. In his great mercy he has given us new birth. Then later, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you. For you've been born again. Then chapter 2. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the, or the cornerstone in our lingo. And then do not repay evil with evil, but but with blessing. And there's more. The Christian must seek peace and pursue it. And from chapter 4, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And into 2 Peter, when the voice came to him saying, This is to Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, and the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Do you see a pattern? At all? Show you this. In the right column are all the gospel references. To those same events or same comments or same teachings. Now, remember, 1 Peter and 2 Peter would have been written before there was any gospel, so he's not quoting books, he's quoting his own experience. The marks of Jesus are all over these letters. Jesus shared a short couple of years' life with Peter and here decades later you can tell, you can see the signs from these letters. You share your life with someone that you disciple, someone that you mentor and you see the same things and likewise the people who input into us will change us without necessarily intending to do so. Now I know a Christian worker, knew a Christian worker a few years ago who had a real magnum PI, and for those of you who are younger, big moustache, big bushy, so and so like that. And this guy was mentoring a group of young students guys, and he started off the only one with a moustache. By the end of the year, by the beginning of the year, by the end of the year, every single one of those guys had a mow. Now he didn't tell them to do that. You know, confess your sins, and by the way, you should be working on your moustache. I think they just admired him, and they wanted to be like him. Nasty moustache and all. I see it in myself, not nasty moustaches, but one of my mentor's pastoral lines, it might surprise you to know, was, how is that for you? It comes out of my mouth every day of the week and five times on Sundays. Those of you that are parents will see it in your kids. You'll hear them using your lines. My daughter started using Steph's lines when she was about three, telling off her younger brother. Christian discipleship is not so much a matter of learning concepts, but rather of life transference. We catch it at least as much as we learn it. But the two work together, the learning supports the catch, supports the habits. And it's lifelong. And this habit that I see, or this pattern in modern church life, is that we invest in teaching kids. And they go to youth group, and they become youth leaders, possibly, or something like that, and when they hit adulthood proper, Frequently they get married, they have kids, they have careers, they have mortgages and all that sort of stuff. Life gets really, really full. And you're doing well if you're still at church and maybe in a small group too. And when the kids get older, people often peel off from Christian community life because, hey, our kids don't need us to be there anymore for them to be there. Somehow I think, we need to rediscover what it is to be lifelong disciples of Jesus, N- not just to surf along on what we absorbed when we were young. Anyway, birdseed. Possible take homes for you. Do you have an unanswered prayer to process, like the prayers that no doubt were said for James? Is there a disappointment with God? Q. it's okay if there was. Talk to him, tell him, rant at him. We've got all the examples in Psalms of David shaking his fist. It's okay for us too. And if you need help with that, talk to the most pastoral person that is close to you. Often it's a team effort. Second, is there a long-term issue to address? We saw Peter's one, something about fear of people going on. Is there something in you that you can, you can look back now and it's been there 10, 20, 30 years, whatever? And lifelong discipleship, it is a challenge. And if that has tweaked something for you, please, I would really, really like to talk to you. Amen. Musicians, um, if you can come do your thing, it'd be lovely.